Hi listeners, Jason here. Joelle, Peter, Haley, and I are taking a five-week podcasting break over the Christmas period to fill our buckets in preparation for what is going to be a huge 2024. For those that hate to go a week, however, without a psych health and safety podcast, we've got you covered with five of our very favorite episodes from 2023. Definitely take a listen if you missed any of these episodes during the year. On behalf of the team, we wish you a happy and safe holiday period and look forward to bringing you more of the very best in psych health and safety when we return on 16 January. Now, on to this episode. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Shee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joel Mitchell. Hello, Joel. I'm all right, Jason. Yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't right, know that on. I have a very interesting story to tell today. So. No interesting stories? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, we were on that meeting yesterday when... I was working from home and my son barged into the room naked, but yeah, fortunately, um, I he didn't um, come across the camera, so yeah, yeah, could have been worse. Yeah, so look, I guess I, I've got a bit of a problem, um, and maybe we can put it out to our listeners. Although I think by the time this goes to air, it's going to be yeah, too late. Too late. Yeah, mm. uh, I got a conference coming up, and they want to introduce me with a funny anecdote, and I couldn't think of anything funny um, about myself, so. Put it out to you and Dan separately, and you both came up with the same story, but we weren't sure, or we actually kind of felt it wasn't. It was inappropriate to share. Yeah, all of the all of the funny stories that I can think of about you are probably not stories that you'd like to be used as part of your introduction at a conference. Yeah, they could put like an NSFW uh, disclaimer at the front or something of the conference. Yeah, this this work conference is not safe for work. Maybe the panel that I'm on or the, the introduction that they do. I feel like that would be counterproductive. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Anyway, so it was about something that I said about popping a, um, a fruit. Um, but uh, I, both you and Dan, when I said think of something funny that I've done, both mm. came up with the same story. So I think we need to find something that's more suitable. So um, look, I will pull it, put it out to the listeners. If there's something funny that I've done – or you've seen, let us know. But it probably will be too late. But for future conferences, because it has come up before where they Let's want a, a funny story. Just be clear, listeners, that this is absolutely an exercise in ego inflation for Jason and nothing else. This is. Please, listeners, write in and tell me all of the things that are funny about me. I think it's ego normalization, if anything, because no. it's kind of like dropping it down. Like, no. Jason, we laughed at you so hard. But, but all of these listeners remember all of these things about me. How great am I? That I don't know. I just want one thing. I just want one thing. One thing. Surely, hopefully, after 150 plus episodes, there's at least one thing they remember. I know there's one thing you remember. Oh, there's plenty of things that I remember. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, look, um, listeners, there's a call out. Um, take it as you will. We don't well, usually get a big response from our listeners. Unfortunately, without call outs, without call outs, yeah, we're you, still waiting for an email for our after dark. That's what I mean. Like, that's the only Dan. thing that you ask them about. 
<laughs> Dan's even got an easier email address, Daniel at flourishdx.com. If you want us to do an after dark episode, let us email Dan. All right, but look, if it's our, not bad enough, just when we're regular us. Yeah. So look, um, our guest has been patiently waiting, yeah. so we should introduce her in. Uh, so look, this guest has authored over a hundred and fifty peer-reviewed journal papers and currently leads research on time as a determinant of health. She combines a clinical psychology background with population health approaches and is a practicing clinical psychologist. She is a professor and director of the Mental Health Review at Australian National University. A warm welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lyndall Stratzens. Uh, thank you so much, Jason and Giles. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here. And hi, everyone out there in podcast land. <laughs> and Lyndall, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, uh, we'll talk about what brought you to our attention uh, shortly, but I think it's going to be a fantastic discussion with you. So before we get into that, Lyndall, what podcast do you like to listen to? Um, so just to say I'm here in Canberra speaking to you and I'm on Gambri and Gunnawal land and um, I, the podcast that I really love right now is a podcast that um, has been growing at the ANU called To Be Continued. And this is a podcast that um, had came out of an idea um, that – and a project I've been working on at the ANU where we bring together a team of creatives with stellar academics and then we create something really enlivening and exciting about their work that anyone could love and learn from. So there's, there's a set of podcasts about our ancient history. Um, in terms of ancient history, I mean our written ancient history in newspapers. There were novels produced um, written in newspapers like sequels. And so one of the uh, academics at ANU has gone through and researched them. We've now produced six podcasts, six fabulous podcasts that take the reader right in to this history, like from bush rangers to ghosts, Australian Gothic, kids' stories, bushfires. We're looking at stories and novels about those issues in Australia, early Australian society around 1890s to 1920s. And they are so beautiful. We had, we've had actors, we've had, um, we've had uh, experts, we've had excerpts read. It's really exciting work and we're getting rave reviews on those podcasts. Nice. It's a sneaky plug there too. Sneaky plug. We like a sneaky plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you tell us about your professional career then, please? Uh, yeah. So my first degree is in fine arts. Um, so, um, I started off wanting to be an artist and then I realized I was going to starve to death. Uh, so, uh, I then became a psychologist because I felt that being a psychologist was probably the second most creative thing I could think of. And it is, and it was, um, and so I, you know, did my clinical masters, uh, and was out there working, particularly working with families and communities and, as I was working, more and more it seemed to me that the things that people were coming in to see me about were things that weren't really about them. And I'll give an example. So we, I had a woman come in who was referred to me by her workplace, long-time employee. They thought she was great, but she wasn't performing. And they asked me to say, find out why, what's going on with, with her. And she you know, came to see me, I worked with her for a while and what became clear to me was her job had changed. She was no longer a typist in that sense. She was now using multiple um, uh, digi digital um, sort of 
uh, work work t- type of work technology. Um, the company had downsized, so she was effectively doing two people's jobs for one. Um, she still had to go home, cook dinners, look after her husband, who was quite authoritarian, and she could not manage the workload. And she was getting distressed and depressed. And when I fed that back to the company, they were like, well, this is how jobs are. And, you know, let me list a couple of the psychosocial work hazards in that particular scenario. But that was a problem in my mind, not of the woman Hmm. or her performance, but a problem in the system and how it had shifted and it couldn't accommodate um, someone who was good, good at their job, but the job had moved beyond what they could cope with. Uh, so that was at that point I thought, right, I'm going into academia. It's a much better place to deal with that sort of stuff than a clinic. A clinic, I'm telling people to change how they think and feel, could be helpful, but actually they need there needs to be more work on changing the circumstances which are driving these problems. So that was my shift into academia. Um, and actually my career has not been in, in psychology, it's been in population health. And the reason is that population health thinks about the social pattern. It is about populations. So it's not about what's happening inside people, although obviously what what happens inside people's minds and bodies is important because that's health. But it's asking what is going on outside the circumstance of people that, that actually drive those things inside people. And I'm incredibly attracted to that as a really, really important uh, way of focusing my work. So that was the shift into academia. Yeah, I um, regular listeners will know that I often bang on about social determinants of health um, as something that is just widely overlooked. Um, and I get really annoyed with things like public policy that focus on, you know, increasing funding for um, downstream mental health services, but, you know, we'll continue to have these um, – yeah, public policies that do things like, um, you know, make life difficult for people who are unemployed or underemployed and, and various other things. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you on, on the importance of, uh, of looking at uh, the system that, that people are in rather than just looking at what's going on inside of somebody and better off changing the things that are harming people rather than just helping them to feel better about being harmed. Yeah, funnily enough, the pandemic, which was all about infectious diseases, I think really drove home that point about mental health because what what everyone saw and the government saw um, was that a change in people's work, a change in people's belonging and connections, a change in people's certainty shifted the whole country into, into right up and so many more people became distressed and the government saw that. And I think that was a light bulb moment for policy. It was like, oh, it's not just about genetics or even family environments. It's actually about what's happening in people's lives now that's so important. So I actually think we're in a, we're in a beautiful point potentially to do some, do some real, really good work around mental health um, at that policy level. Yep, if we can just avoid regression to the mean. That's the <laughs> I think that's going to be the, the challenge at this point in time. Yeah, so look, I think regular listeners will understand from that brief introduction that you've given us, Lyndall, um, why we wanted you on, on the podcast today. We, we regularly talk about um, population mental health and systemic drivers for, for mental health outcomes. 
Um, and it's something that, you know, I've spoken about regularly as well. You know, if you want to improve the whole population's mental health by 5%, uh, very difficult, time-consuming and expensive to do that one person at a time. Uh, much better to look at the systems that, that people are living within. Yep, and work's the big one or one of the big ones. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, your article with the Centre for Work, Health and Safety titled When Do Work Hours Become a Workplace Health and Safety Hazard caught our attention and that's why I thought it would be great to talk about that uh, article on, on this particular podcast. Um, but first of all, maybe can you tell us a bit about your uh, interest in time as a social determinant of health? Yeah. Um, well, how long have we got? But um, <laughs> It's a long format, Lyndall, so we've good, got as much good. time as we need. Yeah. So um, I'll start with two, two, two stories. The first, the first story is I was sitting in a room listening to people talk about physical activity, which is actually one of the most important things people can do for their mental and physical health. Um, more than half the world doesn't do enough physical activity and it's responsible for a huge proportion of global burden disease. If we could do more physical activity and eat healthier food, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, mental health, some forms of cancer, dementia even, could be really reduced. But we don't. And the reason we don't is when we ask people, they'll say, it's not that I lack money and it's not that I don't know what I need to do, I just don't have enough time. And what was fascinating to me was that population health and public health have completely ignored that. So there is a lot of interventions that support people to tell them more, tell them to, to exercise more, or eat healthy food or all those other things. So that's knowledge. There is population health interventions that try and you know, help people who are low income, free services and so on, but they have completely ignored time. It was just seen as something that people said because they were making an excuse, they were neurotic or they were um, not motivated. So it was always shifted into a not serious, won't take this serious problem. And so I thought, actually, it's a huge social problem. It's a huge social problem. And guess what? It's a huge social problem for some people more than others. And most of those particularly are women or anyone who's trying to combine work with care. And so that's one reason why it's been ignored. And that social problem is driving some of the most important diseases that we've got and um, creating some of the, you know, it also has a huge role in mental health problems. So realising that there was this silence on time in the field was, um, and how much it was silencing really important people was um, a kind of aha moment. And it was an aha moment as I was working in the field of population health, just hearing people talk about, let's get people to exercise more, let's do this, let's do that. Completely, it seemed to me, unaware that some people couldn't. So that inspired me to go, all right, so we actually need to take time seriously. We need to ask people about their time. We need to find out who's got the problem with time and we need to understand how it's driving a whole lot of health inequalities as well as a sign of sort of, social disempowerment and that was the kind of the kickstart it was that listening to a whole bunch of um, people who are into preventative health saying let's just ask people to catch the bus every day let's just ask people to do that and there was so many people who can't do that or don't for whom that involves so many other complexities like they're, they're either they've got kids or they just don't have the capacity to do it so that has sort of um, led one of the reasons why um, 
that's also been so difficult is because there's been very weak evidence on how important time is. So that sort of basically became my um, my focus and working with a whole lot of wonderful people. So let me just be really clear. This is not all my work. This is this is, what I'm talking about is um, sitting with because is from all these very fine minds of people I've worked with and who've come at this idea in different ways. So there's a whole bunch of folk in Australia and overseas um, who have been looking at this connection between time and health. Uh, we looked at work-family conflict and health, which is really this conflict between work and family life. And what we found was not only is it a problem, particularly for mental health, for mothers, it's a problem for fathers. In fact, it's more of a problem for fathers and mothers. And it affects children's mental health and well-being too. So it's a family harm. And it's a harm we haven't dealt with. It's a harm that's kind of gone as, oh, well, that's someone's choice. How do you deal with work-family conflict? Well, that's a family's choice or that's an individual's choice. But we've got a workforce which is now 48% women. So if they choose to work... Um, just like men choose to work, then how are we going to resolve this massive social issue between the conflict between work and care? So we started off with that idea and just showed how it was actually affecting the whole family, not just the individual. And then we started to look at time itself in terms of you know eating, exercise, physical activity. Um, and that led me fairly quickly to work hours. Because what we can see in the data is that people's time, work hours drive how people use their time. In, they're a really powerful determinant of what happens. And everyone's only got 24 hours in a day. It's probably the most precious resource or the most finite resource we've got. You just can't, you can't buy it. You can't trade it. You haven't, can't save it up in a bank. It's 24 hours. That's it every single day. And if you have to do something more, then you, by definition, have to do something less. So there's always a trade-off. If we ask people to do more, like the woman I met, I worked with as a clinician, then she has to do something less. And what does she do less of every day? Well, in her case, she tried to do more by rushing and uh, worrying, but she was unable to, you know, her sleep started to go down, her healthcare behaviour started to go down, her time with her relationships, the things that actually kept her healthy started to go down. So every time we ask more of people without understanding that, that's, that, that actually now so much of our workforce has to do so much in a day, um, then they're doing something less. And that's where the health harms start to show up. I'll give you one stat. Um, whenever I talk about work hours, People say to me, well, hey, the work hours are so much better than what they were, you know, when we were all working in factories in, you know, in the 1850s or uh, even the 19th century uh, work hours, you know, 1900s, been about 48 hours. So, you know, honestly, this is, we've got it good. But they don't understand that in that time there was a household and in that household, one person was working maybe 45, maybe 48 hours a week, but the other person wasn't. They were doing all the other work. Now you've got a household with two people working. So households have gone from giving about 45 hours to a labour market to something closer to 78 hours in the labour market. 
So when you think about a household, that is an enormous impact on what time they've got. And we haven't thought about time like that. We've thought of it as our own work hours, but actually there's a whole population process with ours that changes it as women have come into the workforce. And that's why we have such a profound problem with time. We're 100 years out of step. <clears throat> Lindell, that's um, a couple of great stories to articulate the problem, I think, quite well in, in your area of, uh, of interest with your research. <clears throat> and I think what we're seeing... Uh, on the back of the pandemic, like you say, the pandemic has shone a light on a lot of things, including, you know, what are some of the things that people have thought were not changeable but are. And uh, one of them is the commute to work. Uh, there's a lot of people that are being asked to go back to the workplace now and they're going, actually, I like my extra hour or two a day that I'm not having to spend in traffic or on the bus. Um, and so that time that they've gotten back from being able to work from home is actually something that they're seeing is really valuable. Um, and some people are choosing to leave workplaces where they don't offer work from home as an option because they now realise how valuable that extra time is. And then the other is this whole idea of the four-day work week, you know, getting paid the same amount to, to work four days and have three days off to recoup that extra time to reinvest back into work or self-care or, or however people choose to reinvest it. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that you have had this focus around I'm as a determinant of health and now we're seeing some big things on the back of the pandemic uh, shift in terms of how people are thinking about what does a normal workday look like and how that might influence uh, people's well-being as well. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you are concise. <laughs> well, uh, so, so what I'd say about that is that um, it's a, it's a real area of contestation because it's not just there are some people saying it's a four-day work week, but at the same time there are industries that are working enormous hours, mm. enormous hours and intractably enormous hours. So we, don't, we, we do actually need to have a whole country conversation about that. It's not a boutique issue. It's actually a whole labour market issue and – it needs to move out of being a boutique conversation into this you know, whole of country conversation, which brings me to our national employment standards, which are actually 38 hours a week. Mm. Um, I would say there's no national employment standard that's more routinely ignored than that. 40% of our labour market works, regularly works beyond that. So there's ex extraordinary disconnect with how precious time is that people want that extra 20 minutes or hour so strongly they'll change jobs to get it. And then the fact that we have a national employment standard that is almost of no consequence to most workplaces. Yeah, and we'll actually pick that up a little bit later on in the discussion when we talk about the, uh, the federal court case against the NAB and what are considered reasonable additional hours on top of that normal 38 hours a week. Yeah, and that probably leads us into um, the next question, which is around um, health and safety outcomes for workers. And, you know, typically where there is a national standard that relates to health and safety outcomes, employers are kind of expected to um, comply with that standard because that's, you know, the evidence of, of them meeting their um, duty of care obligations. Um, so can you explore a little bit there the relationship between working hours and health and safety outcomes for workers? 
Yeah. Um, that let me let me start by saying what the evidence is so far, and then I'll tell you what I think's wrong with the evidence. <laughs> okay. Um, so that. First of all, um, you would know from the psychosocial hazards that work hours aren't mentioned except as a job demand. Mm. But when you drill into the job demands and look at them, very large, well, many of them refer to excessive workloads, which usually translate into excessive hours. So it's really interesting to me that workloads often aren't called, uh, work hours aren't often called out. There's almost a euphemism around them in work health and safety, their demands or their excessive workloads. But the hour is actually a good marker of how if people being excessive or not. So there's there is in the field this kind of um uh mm, I don't know what it, whether it's deliberate or not, but there's definitely a vagueness about putting pointing the finger at out. Yet the evidence is that our long hours exact health harms just as they are. They 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 increase the risk for other harms like injuries. Um, I think it's about 30%, 37% increase in, in work, other workplace health and safety injuries if you work more than 12 hours a week. So they, they 12, 12 hours a day. Yeah, I think it's 23% for a 60-hour week. Yep. Uh, so they also provoke other injuries. They're not just – but then there's the World Health um, Organization recently re- released a report saying that work hours were one of the most important of all work-related hazards because they affect so many people. And it was a risk factor for cardiovascular diseases. They set the benchmark at around 55 hours a week as excessive. There's a lot of other evidence to show work hours, longer hours, working beyond, say, 45 to 50 hours are associated with things like um, musculoskeletal injury, mental health, poor mental health, um, he- poor healthy behaviour. So, you know, in that article, I did cite quite a lot of those references, which talk about you know decades really of, of of research showing that the longer people work, the worse their health gets, and it's usually the evidence seems to be around forty five hours up is where that marker is. So now let me tell you what's wrong with that evidence. Um, the first thing is it's evidence based on who is actually working long hours, which means that the people who have already been harmed or can't work long hours and therefore at the highest risk aren't in that sample. So what you've got is almost like a survival of the fittest. You've got the folk who can actually work the long hours. And not surprisingly, in the very long hour categories in Australia, it's around 70% men. So you've got research conducted on a very small group of, in the population who are very different from many other people in the labour market and the workforce who are usually, um, you know, ha- live in circumstances that are quite often um, tailored to their long hours. So they have a partner at home who does all the other work and so on. And they're healthy enough to have stayed in those jobs. They've already started probably with very good health and they're healthy enough that they haven't fallen out of them. That means you're talking about how do work hours harm the health of the people who are the fittest, the most privileged, the most time-rich, and probably many of them the most well-paid. All those estimates I've told you are based on that. 
because that's what's in the sample. So the the problem we have with the data is it it it, it has already um, it's already if you like ignoring most of the labour market, and that's not how work health and safety should operate. Work health and safety should be saying, okay, what's the what's the dose at which most you know most people a harm can be detected or observed, and that's the dose we set. Not the people who are the healthiest, or the fittest, or have got I don't know superpowers or whatever it is. Um, it's actually the dose that that where 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 um, harm is, is is seen to be, you know, reasonably minimal for the, the the labor market and the composition it is. Well, we don't. We that's not how we've approached workhouse. So um, the. The research for World Health Organization, for example, um, yeah, finds not surprisingly most of the people that in their sample are men, and that's why the rate is 55. Couldn't really tell what it meant for women because they didn't have very many women in their sample. Um, the problem we have with that is that also that fifth, that whole way of thinking about work hours assumes that that's the only work someone has. But what if people do work that's not paid, but it still takes time? So that means, in effect, they go into those jobs and they've already worked 30 hours a week, say. And then they're working the rest. Now, those people don't ever work in the long hours jobs because they literally can't because their 24 hours a day have stopped. But once people try and combine other work, unpaid work of any form, um, with paid work, that actually changes that threshold between how long hours, how long you work it for money, and then at what point your health harms change. It's just an hour's an hour. So the those estimates are, if you like, old-fashioned. And they don't really apply to our labor market now, which has got a mixture of women and men, it's got older and younger, it's got um, able and um, people who have some disabilities, it's got such a different mix. But those hours are not; those thresholds aren't calculated on any of those people. So that's the work we've been doing: is trying to calculate the thresholds. That what's the point at which we can see harms um, when we think about the whole population and don't just work with the sample. So you have to estimate out. You have to use the sample, start to estimate. You add in the other hours they're working and then you start to estimate out um, where's the tipping points. Yeah, lots of interesting points there. And I think um, just to maybe draw on one of the last points that you made there, um, that idea that, yeah, we all have 24 hours in a day but we don't all have the same 24 hours and that, you know, um, time is used very differently different people so you know for somebody with a disability um, the process of actually getting to and from work can be much more time consuming than an able-bodied person um, as an example um, yep. you know yeah people with carer responsibilities um, you know I know for me um, dropping my son off at school and picking him up um, every day adds probably an extra hour of time um, into my day um, that means yeah that that's an extra hour of, of stuff that I can't be doing elsewhere um, so yeah, it's, um, 24 hours, but those 24 hours mean very different things depending on, um, th those variables that you've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 we trade our time for money in the labor market. 
they're really connected. And, you know, our status and our control over life, we've often thought of it's just about income. It's actually about both. And who gets paid for what and who doesn't get paid is a sign of who is status, uh, value, and whose time gets counted and whose time doesn't get counted, also a sign of status and value. And so work hours now, I think, are kind of colliding into this sort of um, this whole sort of social patterning around what's value, what's not, what's what's real work, what's not real work, and who's actually working. And this is this is why we do need to have that different conversation because it may have been okay when we had around 80% of the labour market were male and they had a team, but it's not okay now with four, you know, pretty much 50-50 men and women and a much more diverse labour market. Um, Lyndall, another thing you, you mentioned that I wanted to pick up on um, is something that Joelle has actually made um, some comparisons to. You talked about what's reasonable for one person for working hours might be harmful for another um, based yep. on a number of different factors, right? And uh, the example, Joelle, you give is around manual handling, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so if we had – yeah, if, if you were looking at the dose uh, response for like what's um, – how much weight can somebody lift before it harms them and we were to, – to build on your example, if we were basing that on um, a cohort of um, people who were doing sort of heavy – weightlifting, um, you know, three or four times a week and use those as the basis to decide what's a safe weight to lift, yeah, we would be excluding a, a large volume of, of the population and um, we we're expecting people to be able to lift that um, amount of weight. We would have a lot of injuries happening very, very quickly. Um, and so, yeah, we need to look at, well, what's actually a reasonable weight for, you know, somebody like me to be able to lift, for example, um, or, you know, somebody who doesn't have the, the physical abilities that I have and, and yeah, what is actually reasonable um, at a population level. Um, yep. And that sort of feeds into um, like ergonomics in um, design of like accessibility for things, taking into account different heights and sizes and all, all of those types of things as well. Um, and the, um, the crash test dummies now having um, female anatomy-based dummies rather than just... Um, downsized male anatomy dummies um, is an example of that as well. That's a great example with the weights. I love that. I, I hope I can use that, Joelle. Go for it. That's Just cite Joelle like I did, yeah. So, um, <laughs> but uh, no, but it's, it's exactly what you're talking about, right? Because you're talking about, well, the, the research is wrong because you're looking at a subsection of the population, like you say, 70% male, um, who probably don't have the same sort of time constraints as the female population because of caregiving responsibilities and household responsibilities and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things we've been really lucky is the, the, the HILDA survey, which is the Australian data set, big data set, it counts unpaid time. So we've actually been able to model it, you see, uh -huh. and we've done it in Germany because they've got unpaid time in their big you know, national surveys. But very few places, you, if you look at any of the literature on work hours and health, there won't be anyone who's um, looked at actually all work and then gone, so 24 hours a day? Um, here's the total work. So what is what, what's the cutoff point then? And, and you can see the difference. Um, but the other thing to say about work hours is that everyone has an opinion of them. So 
because everyone has a work hour. Everyone works out has work hours. So what what I'm seeing is that this it's a, it's a place in policy making where there's people refer to themselves a lot in making their assessment of what's reasonable or not. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had someone say, hey, I worked 100 hours a week and it was what I had to do to succeed and look at me now. Yeah, lived experience, so, we call that. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah. Lived experience. We can learn so much from someone's individual experience. Yeah. Yeah. And they, first of all, they assume the rest of the world is like them. Mm-hmm. And then they also assume that the rest of the world should be like them. So that what ha- has happened in the debates, and I'm sure it will come up in all sorts of arenas like the test case with uh, um, on reasonable hours, is that people don't just go, oh, you know, here's the evidence. They go, oh, but I do this. And so that it's very personal. Work hours are one of the most personal, I think, of all work health and safety Issues because everyone has has to has to make that decision often every day about how how they're going to do that and what they're going to do it brings up a lot of defences. Yeah, it's you'd pu- have um, you'd have a, a level of survivorship bias in there as well, right? Mm. Well, absolutely, because um, those people who are the hundred hours a day people, the folk I just explained, are yeah, they're your, they're your weightlifters. Mm. Yeah, and we see that all the time in the legal profession, the health profession, those people who are the s- survived um, and they've done the hours. They're like, what's wrong with this new generation that can't work those sort of hours that I used to? Yeah. yeah. So it's a very – so when you talk about what's reasonable, it does become a contest of personal experience and anecdote and often privilege as, as much as evidence. And I think that that's been one of the reasons why we haven't had good conversations about work hours as a as a country, because those conversations um, haven't been held, and if they have been held, they've been kind of flooded with these um, anecdotes and you know uh, this idea that this is what you have to do to succeed. And in a way, there's a lot of heroism around working long hours. It's this idea that it's a heroic act, it's an, an act of great survival and it's an act of great commitment and it's a kind of du- duty. And so there's a real sense that this is a, um, a a right thing to do and a chosen thing to do. Well, I will add also it's a very rewarded and incentivized thing to do because in our labour market, people who work 50 hours a week or more probably earn almost double um, the earnings of someone who works 38 hours a week. They get a huge pay premium. So we incentivize the her- heroism um, and the long hour culture. But then, of course, it means that only some people get paid that much. Hi, listeners. Jason here. We hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode. Now, if you're like Joelle, Alicia and myself and enjoy learning from the best, then the Flourish DX Academy is for you. The Academy includes free e-learning courses on the ISO 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety podcast and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. 
Get started with Flourish GX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. I think what's interesting in that as well, Lyndall, there's I think a trade-off sometimes between hours and intensity and that you you know, I think what we see is that productivity tends to plateau after a certain number of hours. So if you're still physically present in the workplace beyond those hours, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily actually being more productive. Um, and if I think about, um, I guess, FIFO workforces, for example, who would be an example there of, um, you know, where they are working 12-hour days, um, sometimes longer, including travel, but then they have things like, um, you know, all of their meals are prepared for them and they have a cleaner that comes through and, and cleans their accommodation for them and those sorts of things. Uh, but then they also have really um, structured work days, protected breaks. They have a morning smoko. They have a lunch break. They have an afternoon smoko. Um, you know, so while their overall start to finish hours might be sort of a 12-hour window, they do actually have a number of protected breaks during that period of time so that the intensity of work isn't as significant. Um, and I think even in office environments as well, um, we can see that sometimes where people might work very long hours in terms of being physically present in the office, but the intensity of, of the work that they're doing over that period of hours isn't the same as somebody who's actually compressing um, their productivity into a shorter volume of hours so that they can meet their unpaid work requirements. Yep, absolutely. And uh, you know, um, it hours an hour, an hour is in an hour. But what that hour's like is also potentially a really important part of the kind of health story. Um, is it you know a relaxed hour? Is it a pleasurable hour? Is it a um, an anxious hour? Is it a pressured hour? Is it uh, an overwhelmed hour? So um, you're quite right, and um, that combination of long hours and um, High intensity is a very potentially um, detrimental combination for mental health in particular. Yeah. But also musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal injuries as, as well. Yeah. And then if we're looking at like healthcare, if we're looking at surgeons, you know, and like the duration of, of some surgeries and, and that sort of thing, then, you know, that's when we're getting into quite scary um, territory. Yeah. So let, let me come back to your question of what's reasonable. Um, I think maybe my first question, Jason, is why do we need to, um, if we have a national employment standard of 38 hours a week, why are we asking what's reasonable? Yeah, well, I, I'm interested. Is, is 38 hours a week protective? I mean, you gave us some statistics before around when people work more than that, uh, either for you know on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, then we have a increased likelihood of harm. Um, but is, is 38 hours ideal? Does it need to be less given what other people are doing in their life? Is it suitable for the, like we're talking about, for the population that of workers, particularly like you say now that 48% of the workforce is, is female, um, not as male-dominated as it once used to be? Um, is 38 hours still reasonable and protective enough for the majority of people if we're, if we're using, again, the manual handling uh, example? Yeah. Well, if... That's what we've been trying to estimate and what we kind of get at is around between 39 to 40 hours seems to be a sweet spot. And what's really interesting is that people's mental health improves as work hours go up 
and then it declines. So, you know, work is actually people get a lot of good things out of their work. They get as, as well as income, they get, you know, meaning, participation, a whole lot of things. So work is good for, for most people, It's it, um, particularly if it's good quality work. And as you say, Joelle, it doesn't, um, th- yeah, the quality of the work is, 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 is really um, supportive. But after that, it changes. So my answer would be, yeah, on balance, the evidence, if you look at a population level, not just the people who have been able to, to kind of move into those long-hour jobs, but the whole population take into account the mix of ages, uh, genders, um, in that population, then around 30, 38, 39 to 40 hours seems to be pretty good. So funnily enough, that is a sweet spot. If someone's got really heavy caregiving duties, then it's not, it's lower. Mm. So that they're a tipping point that that tipping point drops down lower because they've got far more domestic work. But, you know, that's usually characteristic of parents with young children or parents with a very sick or disabled uh, or a person with a sick or disabled household member or a very elderly and unwell household member. So they are there are a couple of... Yes, not. I wouldn't say they're minorities, but they're not large groups of people, or they're at very particular points in time. But in general, that, that thirty-eight to forty hours feels about looks looks to be estimating about right for mental health, also physical health. Yeah, uh, and that that follows, um, you know, with our uh, approach, um, you know, designed for the majority, and then make accommodations for those people who need accommodations, um, and. Savvy employers hopefully will recognise they need to make accommodations if they want to attract good people that can't necessarily do the same hours. Yeah, so, you know, it's not to say that people can't and shouldn't be flexible their hours. So I think that's the other thing is that people go, well, but, yeah, what if I've got a big week on or blah, blah, of course. But like everything, it's this idea that once people have done that big week, there's an accommodation and a pullback. It's not built in. To the job mm-hmm. as as a regular expectation. So, in in our um, data, we just ask people, you know, how often do well, what do you usually work? So it's usual. So mm-hmm. they're talking about regular work hour patterns, not you know once once or twice, you know, exceptional work hours. And I think that that flexibility is actually important for everybody because there's a give and take in that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, that that's quite an interesting point that you raise there, and I think. Like one of the classics that we see is, um, you know, where where maybe somebody resigns from an organisation and um, their role is temporarily, she says with inverted commas, um, you know, reallocated to other team members to kind of take up that that slack for a period of time while while they're recruiting. Uh, the organisation looks and says, oh, okay, well, these team me- members are actually managing okay with that extra work, so we don't need to recruit for that role. Um, without really recognising that, you know, those team members are able to extend for a short period of time to cover, um, but they can't actually carry on with that additional load um, over the long term and that's when they'll sort of start to burn out. You know, I I suppose I often think um, the conversation is normally pitched about why can't people work long hours 
And I, I think it should be more discussion. Well, why, why should they, or why, 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 why are they, and, and why aren't they sticking, and why aren't you, the organisation, sticking to the full time standards that we have, which you know came about after many, many, many decades of um, of uh, negotiations. Hmm. And that, that's probably a good segue into um, talking about, you know, then what are reasonable additional hours. So we talk about the standard is 38 hours a week, uh, right? Um, but many employment agreements um, have it that employees are expected to work reasonable overtime as required. Uh, and as we mentioned earlier in this episode, that's something that's currently being tested in the Federal Court of Australia um, with uh, the NAB. Um, so it's the financial services union that are working with uh, their members um, to say, well, actually, our members are working a lot more hours than that regularly. Um, so what is actual reasonable overtime? So in your research is, uh, first of all, do you have any comments on that case? And then second of all, um, is there any, in your research, is there a safe amount of extra overtime that people can do? Well, I, I love the word overtime. Because what it tells you is it's it's a it's a exceptional. It's mm. not regular. So there's this interesting language of what's a reasonable amount of hours to work over time, as if that then becomes the permanent state of affairs. It seems to me it's perfectly reasonable for, for people to work longer as needed, as long as it's balanced back. It's when overtime becomes the only time people work at the uh, and that's. I think that's what, as I understand it, that case is about. Mm. It wasn't simply a one-off. It was always. And um, so I think that there needs to be some discussion about, well, is this, what's the flexibility in this? Is it a one-off or two-off? But, or is it an every week or most weeks expectation? I think they're very, very, very different things. Um, as long as there's a compensation and it's seen as as neat, you know as a surge type um, process, but it will be balanced back, and people have to be accountable for that. Um, I don't mean the individual working; I mean the managers. That is, they have to say they worked extra this week, and I'm going to make sure they take ten hours off next week. Mm. That there's there's an accountability built into it. Um, so, as I understand it, that's rare. The accountability first point. As I understand it, most of the conversation about reasonable hours, actually it's more like how often do people, you know, how, how long can people work regularly is, is, is the kind of real conversation people are having. It's not a, a, a kind of overtime as needed irregular thing. It's actually a conversation about what's, 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 a, what's an acceptable standard for this industry to work. Um, and, and, many, and if you look at that clause, it says, or um, I think it says something like, um, or as per industry standards. So there's a lot of outs mm. in defining what the national employment standard, which, again, I don't think you'd see in, in any of the other national employment standards. So work hours are very, very political. Mm. Um, they are, I would say, as political as pay rates. And that politics is showing up in the language and the way the kind of that standard is is framed and pitched, and the discussions about it. Uh, when it comes down to what's reasonable, well, um, 
yeah, I suppose it's what is it reasonable to ask people to regularly work longer hours, more than 38 hours or not, um, given our workforce, given there's health is one part of it, but there's also just looking at the statistics of people who are working those longer hours. And then there's another piece of this whole discussion, which is sometimes people work long hours because they get really terrible pay. So for those people not to work the excess hours is actually really a, a hardship issue for them. So they're working long hours to solve another problem, which is very low pay. So there's another problem sitting in that problem. So hmm. the answer depends a little bit, I, I suppose, would be my, my response to you, Jason. If there are people who are being paid badly, then the, the real issue is the lack of pay. Hmm. That they can't afford to work a decent yeah, a living wage week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we, we see that in places like Singapore and the Middle East where they're reliant on migrant workers who are coming from lower socioeconomic countries um, and are going to work. 60 hours is kind of the standard, but then like, they most work up to 90 hours a week. Um, yeah. You know, because of the low low wages, right? Um, and the uh, ability while they're away from their family to earn as much money as possible to send it home. Um, yeah. So, it's, you know... We've got issues in Australia, um, but, you know, there's obviously much bigger issues with that living wage and the sort of hours that people are working internationally as well when we're talking about migrant yeah. workforces. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so there's a problem for the very low paid, but then there's also the problem that we um, we create a kind of job tournament around long hours to get the, good, the big bucks. Mm. And so actually really good money is linked to long hours. And then that motivates and incentivizes people to appear to choose them. So there's, there are these questions about how, how we incentivize long work hours. I think that really clouds the issue around health and it also drives a whole lot of problems in terms of fairness in our labor market as well. So it is complicated in that sense. Um, the stats just speak for themselves. Um, you know, that the, the, the long hours, only a very small group of people work them and um, it's excluding large numbers of people. Uh, otherwise, it's effectively another form of discrimination, particularly for women. Yeah, and when we look at things like, um, you know, promotions and, and those sorts of things, you know, a lot of the time or even if you're, you're looking at, um, you know, when organisations are downsizing or um, even... At, at the point of an annual performance review, um, you know, I think the perception of performance is so tightly coupled with um, attendance um, rather than output, I guess. Um, and obviously there is a relationship between if you're spending longer hours then you can be more productive. Um, so, yeah, it almost becomes that... Um, that cycle of privilege where people who do actually have the privilege in their life where they're able to um, attend work for longer hours, if we're talking about um, in particular things like a white-collar working environment, um, then that means that they're actually more likely to um, get things like promotions and bonuses and, and be seen as somebody who can be on the fast track for, you know, um, moving upwards through the company because they start out with that privilege of time that other people don't have and so then they're advantaged because of that. Um, and so then there almost becomes this sort of performative element of 
well, you need to be seen to be at work and you need to be seen to be doing the stuff so that you can be then considered for these these advancements and that sort of thing. So you can't just be doing what your contract says you need to do because that's not going to be good enough to um, to make you competitive in that job market. Um, and it just reminds me of that whole, I don't know if you've seen the movie Office Space, Lindell, but the whole thing about we need to talk about your flair. We need to talk. Do you know what this is about? My uh, flair. All right. There's my flair, okay? Um, yeah, it just, just reminds me of that scene all the time. I'm sure Jack can oh. chop it into the video. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to I'll have to watch it. It's very good. Yeah. It's a it's a movie from the nineties, but it's um just a very good um mm, satirization of modern corporate work. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I think you raise also a really good point that um, to some extent people who do office jobs, they take a risk with the sedentary side of things, but also they're not le- as likely to destroy their bodies physically as someone who is in a blue and pink collar job. Mm. And so what that means is if you reward long, very long hours, um, you're all, almost immediately rewarding people in terms of income and prestige, white collar workers versus blue and pink collar workers. So it sets up these patterns which really start to then create inequalities in the labour market that sort of go through sort of by top industry, also class and then gender as well. And this then becomes a social problem. If you think about um, Japan and South Korea struggling with catastrophic fertility rates, Korea 07 Six. So they're not even getting one person, a baby per two people. That's less than one ba- a baby per two people. They've got work maximum work hours of around, I think the, um, there's been some debate about whether they should be 64 hours a week. So enormous gender inequality in the labour market. The Korea, South Korean women are as well-educated as men and the gender statistics on South Korean women in the labour market is enough to make anyone weep. It's It's so poor and there's very long hour culture and this cataclysmic drop in fertility. So yes, um, we do talk about it as an individual choice, but actually it's a social choice and it's a very problematic social choice if this is how we conceive of work. Um, Lyndall, in your article, uh, one of the the last things you leave uh, people with is thinking about um, the objections to working hours being a workplace health and safety risk. Um, I'm wondering if we could spend the last bit of time that we've got with you today on today's podcast to talk through some of those those common objections. So uh, the, the first one was uh, that they are an industrial relations issue. They're not a workplace health and safety issue is basically what people are saying. Um, how, how do you respond to that one? They're both true. And I think most work health and safety issues at least some of many of them, and certainly the history of making them uh, work health and safety hazards has involved an industrial relations process. So I think it would be, um, you know, we might imagine that, you know, um, uh, work health and safety practices about how we use ladders is not an industrial relations issue, but actually the whole field of work health and safety struggled um, politically to get traction. It was seen as... And, in, you know, not the employer's problem when you look back at the history of work health. So um, work hours 
I think, as I said to you, I feel are a particularly political problem and they are as political as wages because that's how money's made. So they really feed into issues of profit and profitability and sustainability. One of the problems we've got is if we actually say, okay, employers can choose to let their workers work less hours. If they're not on a level playing field with the other employers, then we're asking them to potentially have um, a competitive disadvantage. So the system kind of locks itself in until there is some regulatory action. Um, and and we've, obviously, we've, we've seen the same, uh, you know, with the, the latest regulations that most states now have enforced around psychosocial risk. Um, you know, it was seen as optional um, that companies exercise a uh, duty of care to protect people from psychosocial hazards. Um, but, you know, now that it's regulation and enforceable, um, you know, now we're seeing more companies go, actually, we do need to do something in this area. It isn't an option. So, yeah, I concur from uh, very recent examples. Yeah. So while it stays outside a regulatory framework, it's very weakened. Mm. It becomes, you know... Will we, will, we, will we or won't we for the employee's point of view? And there's some costs to them as well for making that shift. And if everybody else in the industry is working 50 hours a week, that's really a problem. So um, it is an industrial relations, but it also we know with the health evidence, it has health harms, significant health harms attached to it. It's also a gender equality issue. So it's, it's kind of three things as a matter of fact, not just two. So the next objection um, that would be one of the common ones is that people choose or opt into long work hours. We've sort of talked about this a little bit already. Yeah, and um, I suppose um, I don't know why people people who work long hours. Um, what, I mean, we had the same problem with other work health and safety hazards. Well, you know, get another job if you don't like working with asbestos. Um, so if all the jobs involve a hazard, then what are the choices? So this, uh, you know, I think there is um, – we reward people for working long hours. That's true. And to some people, people do choose to work them. The question is, is that acceptable en masse? And I would say to you that people can work as long as they want to if, if it's not harming their health and then negotiate that with their employer, but most people can't do that. Mm. in terms of their health and well-being. Yeah, and like you say, it's those ones that are most marginalised that often um, don't have that ability to negotiate with their employer. Um, what about uh, the objection that long hours don't pose an immediate health harm uh, and they're only a health harm if workers repeatedly commit to longer work hours? Yeah. So like any chronic disease, um, be it, you know, physical or mental, um, un unless there's a, you know, a major, very severe injury or trauma, most things accumulate, accumulative. So it's not that there's – and that's what makes them quite hard to, I think, think about. It's not like falling off a roof, which is, you know, an event, a single event, clear injury – clear location and so on. Mental health in particular is a much more complex health outcome and most chronic diseases are. Um, but I, I think it comes back to this idea that it's the regular working of long hours that is, is a problem. And at the moment, um, it, it, it employers, just like any exposure to anything toxic, 
including things like asbestos or smoke or dust, um, you know, we know that the more you are exposed, the worse it is. So you want to set the dose down pretty low mm. and minimise exposure. And same with work hours. All right. And then the uh, final common objection we wanted to talk to you about is uh, that it's just difficult to reduce long work hours. It is. It's difficult for all the reasons we've described, but then I guess can you think of a work health safety issue that hasn't been difficult? Mm. Um, I, I think what makes it particularly difficult with work hours is because of their connection with reward in the labour market uh, and that we have rewarded them and they've become a, a sort of almost a status symbol for many people as well as a way out of, you know, in some cases, low-paid jobs. Um, so we need to think through that uncoupling hours from pay. Um, while we attach good money to excessive hours, people are very motivated to keep working in them, back to choice. Um, well, it's a constrained choice. It's If you said to someone, okay, you could get the similar money for lower hours, versus similar money for longer hours, I'd be very surprised if many people go, oh, I'll take the long hour option, please. Mostly it's because there are other motivators and drivers. Even just keeping the job is a motivator and driver. So there, there needs to be some uncoupling between long hours and the rewards, the systematic rewards or opportunities it gives people, which um, that's that's the difficult part is starting to uncouple that. I think I think the evidence is very, very clear that they're a problem for health. But we're still rewarding things that are problematic for health and problematic for uh, an equal labour market and problematic for people um, having equal opportunities in the labour market. So it, we have to uncouple that reward. That's the industrial relations piece. Um, there needs to be some conversation about if you say you're working a full-time job, well, you are. That's 38 hours. Hmm. Yeah. We've got, three, we've got three jobs in this country. We've got part-time, full-time, and then real jobs, and that's the ones that get all the big bickies, and they're closer to 45 to 50 hours a week, and we need to change that. Yeah, I think um, I've made this analogy previous um, episodes as well, and it does have a lot to do with psychosocial hazard exposure, I guess, but also then, yeah, linked to um, working hours is this, I guess, that old idea of danger pay where if you're in a, you know, a physically hazardous working environment where your life is going to be at risk, you're going to get paid more um, for, for doing that. And I guess um, while we've sort of moved away from that in a, in a way with work health and safety laws around duties of care to, you know, to take reasonably practical steps to protect people from harm, um, it seems to now have shifted into this, um, you know, if we're, yeah, requiring people to work longer hours, we'll pay them more. So it's sort of, um, yeah, that, that danger pay concept has kind of morphed across into um, into the working hours um, area, if that makes sense. Well, a very big difference is that the danger pay is for things that are seen as unavoidable. That's, you know that the job itself, you can't avoid that particular harm. Well, there's no comparison with working people excessive hours, in my view. Yeah. I, th I mean, there certainly were points in time where, you know, like working at height, um, the idea of having, um, 
you know, fall arrest, fall prevention systems just wasn't something that was thought about or um, considered to be something that could be done. Um, and so it was seen as unavoidable um, in, in that environment that you would be working at height with the potential to fall to your death. Um, and that's that's maybe where we are with working hours at the moment as well, that there is potentially that perception from an employer perspective um, that, yeah, fewer hours isn't um, achievable from a profitability perspective or, or whatever angle it is that they're looking at. But, yeah, maybe that, that reframing needs to happen there as well um, in the same way that it's happened in relation to those those physical safety hazards and, and the way that we used to look at them. Well, I guess there's two things. If if people are seen that they have to work 50 hours a week, there needs to be full disclosure. This job only will have people who work 50 hours or more in a, a week. I think then that would make it put on the table which employers are making those claims mm. for which jobs. So at the moment that's not on the table. Um, but, uh, you know, when people have got no other option, of course they'll work in dangerous jobs because they've got to survive. Um, but we, I think we've moved a little way beyond that as, as a society, particularly as one of the world's most affluent societies, to say actually we want our work not to be putting people at harm. And the onus is therefore on the workplace to ensure they're not. So it seems to me extraordinary, Joelle, that um, 40% of our labour market are working in dangerous hours, jobs, but they are as we currently, as we are currently operating as a country. Mm. So I guess similar to other challenges, whether it's working at height or asbestos exposure, you know, we need to become more imaginative in how we can actually eliminate some of these things rather than just looking at lower order controls. Well, you see, um, there is lots of our countries that do it differently to us. Mm. So uh, if you look at some of the countries um, where work hours aren't, we have, the, we have a very interesting labour market. We have a, a whole bunch of people up the top in this long hour group, men, a whole bunch of people down the bottom in short hour jobs, women. If you look at countries where um, people work closer to 38 hours, Finland would be a good example, you see that pretty much 50-50, almost all the labour market's sitting there and it's pretty 50-50 women and men in those our bands. So, you know, we've divvy up the hours that way and it's creating a lot of problems health-wise, equality-wise, but there are lots of other ways to do it and other countries are doing it. And there are other countries that are doing it much worse than us, like Japan, South Korea. Um, your US listeners um, will be laughing and rolling their <laughs> eyes listening to this podcast because um, this is, you know, nine days holidays I think is what they get. You know, this is the, the – um, the contestation over who, 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 what, over time, in the labour market is at its, I think, one of its most extreme examples in the US. So, you know, we 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 actually have been a leader as a country on working time. We've fallen behind more recently. I think um, other countries are developing models, and I can tell you their economies are doing quite well. They're, they're not suffering economic collapse because they're moving towards these more even. Um, regulations around work hours and they're also then harnessing the talent of their whole population by doing so. So out there, there's probably a hundred different ways of handling work hours and that it's a, you know, when you talk about choice, well, there's a, actually a policy choice 
and a workplace choice, not just an individual worker's choice around work hours. And that's where the discussion needs to be at, at that, that level of choice, where the power is. Mm. Well, Lyndall, um, you didn't disappoint today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Um, but one question I want to ask you before we uh, wrap up uh, is a question I like to ask all of our guests, and that is uh, looking into the future. Uh, what are your hopes for workplace mental health? Um, look, I think I think this is. I have a lot of hopes for workplace mental health. Um, I think there's a we're moving slowly towards a very different way of understanding what work is. It's no coincidence we're having this conversation about um, our history as a country. It's no um, coincidence that we're starting to go. Oh, um, we really love the way um, people like Stan Grant, for example, are talking about, you know, their the sense of um, dignity and kindness and decency in how people relate. Well, we can do that in our workplaces as well. And one of the things about mental health is it sits very closely about how we treat other people. It's all about how we treat other people and how we treat other people in terms of the conditions of work we um, set up but also how we behave I think there's a zeitgeist that's starting to really push that. I think there's new models of leadership which are talking about this connected leadership, this um, a leadership that really um, brings people together rather than extracts as much as we possibly can from them. We've thought of people as things to mine. We now, now need to think of them as a, a very different way, just like we need to think about very different ways of, of, of relating to our planet. So if we can move away from extracting as much from people as we possibly can and then chucking them out like a piece of rubbish and move towards how do we actually keep our people working well and flourishing and, and actually top of their game, um, then – it's intersecting with these other national conversations, I think. So I think it's a great a great moment. It's it's really different to what it was 10 years ago when you said um, it was a kind of like nice to have. Mm. Now it's starting to get into, oh, um, we could actually get, you know, regulated if we don't do this. Um, what I'd like to see workplaces do is make it a want to have and, and, and get to actually see that this is where their productivity will come from if they can work with their workforce to make them um, – I mean, there's so much evidence showing that when people are mentally well, they perform better. Their creativity is better. Their thinking's different. Their thinking's bigger. Their thinking's more flexible. Um, it just goes on and on and on. It makes no sense to, be ha to, to work people in ways that harm their mental health, but we haven't quite clicked all those dots together. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, I, think, I think it's within reach. <laughs> I like it, and uh, I think you're right. We've made some uh, pretty big steps here in Australia in the last few years, and um, yeah, hopefully uh, we start to catch up to some of those more advanced uh, countries that you allude to. And Lyndall, do you have any words of advice for listeners who want to move into working in the field of uh, workplace mental health? Uh, look, I think you're going to be in big demand would be my advice to them. Um, I think what I would say is that um, it's political and and that we need to understand that it is political and it is important for businesses to feel they can, uh, you know, survive, make money and so on. Um, and it's important that, that 
all all people who are working aren't being harmed um, by doing their jobs. So it's really being able to hold those very different, often what appear to be different needs and feel the weight, find ways to connect them to make progress as a practitioner, I think, and be able to speak to both. It's not one or the other. It's always always got to be a conversation between let's think about how we can do this. Is it actually helping you with your profitability? Is it really, can we find some compromise grounds here? Can we actually find a, a way forward that can actually make you flourish and your employees flourish? Yeah, I think the, the, the recognition that it is political is really important and probably something that we don't talk about enough, I think, just in general. Um, for many reasons, but uh, we're at the end of the podcast now. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, I think for the field, it's moving away from a kind of clipboard way of thinking about work health and safety to see that it's actually part of social change mm. and social justice. It's actually a, a much bigger thing, and that's why it's so important. Mm. Well, Lyndall, um, thank you for the really stimulating uh, conversation today. I think this will be an instant classic on, on our podcast. It's a really uh, in-depth view of a issue that is a real hot topic. Uh, as it's being tested out currently. Um, so thank you so much for sharing with our listeners today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. It's been unmitigated pleasure. <laughs> Terrific. Well, we'll have to have you again then. Um, so listeners, that brings us to the end of this episode. Remember, we do record over video when we have these conversations with our guests. Probably should have told Linda that beforehand. Um, so you can do my hair. <laughs> so you can catch the video on YouTube um, and all of our other videos. We'll also take uh, some short clips from this uh, this conversation and put them on the LinkedIn page for Flourish DX. And while you're over on LinkedIn, you'll find myself and Joel, uh, and you might be able to find Lyndall there as well if you want to continue the conversation. So thanks again, listeners. Uh, we'll catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.